Listener Production. Just a heads up that this conversation includes a very brief mention of suicide. So listener discretion is advised. Louise Milligan's most recent book explores the brutal cost for victims and witnesses who seek justice. But the brutal cost of seeking justice is something Milligan herself lives with daily. As an investigative reporter for ABC 730 and Four Corners, Milligan's job is to uncover and explore the complicated, often disturbing realities of Australia's most high-profile political and legal stories. Milligan has covered the historic sex assault charges against Cardinal George Pell, rape allegations that were once levelled at former Attorney-General Christian Porter, and misconduct in Australia's parliament. Last week, Commonwealth Attorney-General Christian Porter went public. Australia's highest-ranking Catholic had been convicted of sexual crimes. We take an intimate, behind-the-scenes look at the people who defy the odds to win seats that were once taken for granted. There is a personal cost to the high-profile, high-stakes nature of this sort of reporting. The ABC stands by Louise Milligan, one of Australia's foremost and most awarded investigative journalists. Not for a second does Milligan stray into a place of self-pity, but there is no doubt that work like this takes a toll. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Bron will join me for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is Louise Milligan, one of our best-known investigative reporters. Louise Milligan, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Good to be here. I am so thrilled to have you. I know that many of the people listening right now will know you from your work on Four Corners or from reading your incredible books. So I want to start there, but also I want to go back. When you were a kid, was investigative journalist on the wish list or did you want to be a firefighter? (laughs) No, I definitely was always interested in journalism. So, you know, I grew up in the 80s and I remember watching Yarn Event on the television and reading the newspapers and so on. And my parents were always pretty avid consumers of news, even though, you know, they'd never had anything to do with the industry. And I was tossing up between law and journalism. And I was one of those people that would shock you to learn, hand up straight, you know, the first person to put their hand up in the class. And I was, you know, the ducks of the school and whatever. And so journalism as a degree, it was kind of like, well, you should be doing a law degree, you know? Yeah. Like you've got to, you've got to go shopping with your marks and use them all up. Exactly. Exactly. So I did study law at Monash, um, law arts, and I did honours in politics, but it became pretty apparent sort of fairly soon into that process that it wasn't for me. I was really interested mm. in the policy issues and the the politics of it and the people's stories. I was fascinated by all of that, but I couldn't see myself certainly being a solicitor. And I think, you know, I, I didn't have the patience to go through what it sort of required to become a barrister. I did finish it though, and it was kind of the hardest thing ever, but I then did a graduate diploma in journalism at RMIT in Melbourne. And, um, you know, I just knew I'd straight away I'd found my calling. But, I mean, interestingly, so much of my practice in journalism has been 
around legal issues, yeah. um, around, you know, I, I was a court reporter for many years, but I've done lots of sort of legally sensitive work and work that involves exploring issues around the criminal justice system, et cetera. So it's been an incredibly useful tool to have, you know, that that behind me, that training behind me. And so even though it nearly drove me insane during the process, I'm glad that I persisted with it. Yeah. Oh, that was actually about to be my next question because so much of your work, whether it's your your writing or or your TV reporting, mm. has had an intersection with the law in a big way. How much of that is because you're drawn to it because it's an area of knowledge and expertise and how much of it is from the outside, there seems to be something about you that is very driven by a pursuit of fairness and a pursuit of justice. Mm. How does it sort of fit or am I just making up the reasons? I know. I think that's absolutely right. So there are a few things about to unpack about that. But first of all, when I started off my career, I started as a newspaper journalist at the Australian newspaper. You know, I did the usual sort of like cadet sort of general reporting and then they had me on education. And I did that for about six months or so. And I just really wanted to do courts. And I remember my chief of staff at the time saying to me that, you know, but you're such a beautiful writer, like you would be wasted on courts. And I was like, are you kidding me? It's human drama served up on a plate every single day, all the most compelling and awful and heartbreaking. And, you know, the things that people are really interested in, you see in in the courts. And I absolutely loved that. But yes, I was brought up um, a very strict Catholic and my dad, is he still goes to Mass every week and he has always been very much a social justice Catholic and we were just brought up with that tradition of thinking about people who are less fortunate than you and I've always had a sense that I am incredibly fortunate and wanting to help people who have experienced injustices and to expose it. And, you know, it's a cliche, but to shine light in dark places where perhaps sometimes other people don't want to look. And, you know, every time I do stories that are a little bit lighter, (laughs) I end up gravitating back towards the darkness because it's what gets me going as a journalist and it's what, gives me a lot of satisfaction because one of the fabulous things about working from Four Corners is we have this rare and magical ability to make really important change. And, you know, sometimes I'm sure to the great frustration of perhaps other parts of the media who might have been hammering away at a particular issue and then Four Corners does a story on it and then the next day, you know, a Royal Commission is um, announced or so on. Well, you're very helpfully uh, just taking me from one question to the other (laughs) at the moment, Louise, because uh, there have been a number of major stories that have come out of Four Corners in particular over the last five years that I can think of where the result has been often almost immediately that we have seen government respond with a policy shift or an investigation or whatever it might be. How does that or does that change the way you go about reporting? Because you know that you're not just telling a story that goes into the world and gets consumed in whatever way people reading the papers or no one reads the papers, reads something online or watches something on TV at the other end, that what you do and how you present something has the potential to impact 
the way Australia's legal or policy system works. Do you, do you approach yeah. it differently? Um, I guess you have to accord it with the respect that it deserves mm-hmm. and you have to approach stories with gravity and you have to understand that, you know, sometimes when you ring people up and you say, oh, hello, it's Louise Milligan from Four Corners and they're like, what have I done? What have I done? Ah! It's like, oh, it's okay. That it's is, okay. I've got to say, that is a call I don't think I'd want. I would get very scared. <laughs> You'd have to be like, it's all good. I'm inviting you to lunch. There is a lot of that calming people down when they hear that. But what it does mean is, you know, I always say to people, I will do the right thing by you. Mm. Now, I will make sure that we do things the right way. And it basically means that I know that we will subject their story and if they're making allegations, for instance, to absolute rigorous fact-checking and forensic journalism. And that means that, you know, you're not going out on a limb and not having all the sort of foundations, you know, the roots of the trees beneath you, right? I've never seen anything like the fact-checking that we have at Four Corners. And I've I've worked in newspapers, I've worked in um, daily news, I've worked in other current affairs programs and so on. Granted, we do have more time for stories, but I think it's a really helpful process. We sit down with the script, which is, you know, 45 minutes of TV. So that's a lot of televisual kind of real estate and a lot of information. And we go through word by word, line by line, three people. How do we know that? How do we know that? How do we know that? We have all the documents lined up and if it doesn't pass muster, it doesn't go into the show. And then we have, um, you know, legal meetings with every single story to make sure that it's, you know, legally going to also pass muster. And so it just means that I feel like I am looking after the people who take, you know, frankly, enormous risks sometimes to go on our program. Yeah. And particularly when it's a high profile story, knowing that all sorts of things are going to potentially rain down on them. And we can say to them at least, well, we're doing this properly. Four Corners, as you say, does have um, the time and the space to do that thorough investigation and reporting. But across the media in Australia, there are fewer and fewer places that do have that capacity, Mm. Mm. um, mostly because of funding constraints or journalists having to churn, I don't know, four stories out a day for online, for example, doesn't give you a lot of time to, to go into a level of depth. Can you see the ramifications of what's happening behind the scenes with the funding of media, particularly around reporting and investigation? Can you see it in the output that's happening and what impact does that have? Well, I have to say, having been the news as well as reporting <laughs> the mm. news. So because of some of the stories that I have covered, for mm. instance, you know, the Cardinal Pell story, which, you know, was the subject of my first book, um, Cardinal, and the Christian Porter story, for instance, um, other journalists cover what I have done. Yes. It's a very eye-opening experience, I must say, and you do see that people get things wrong all the time. Mm. And sometimes when you draw it to their attention and you you provide information to correct the record, they simply refuse to. Mm. And that is really, really chilling to me. 
And I thought my industry was better than that. And I actually also don't think that it's just about time constraints or budget constraints. I think one of the other really big issues that has come up in all of this is the culture wars and the um, approaching a story from a particular perspective without actually ever wanting to really, really engage with the other side of it. Um, And, yeah, it's really, really sobering, I must say. Mm. Um, And I've had moments where I I just feel despair, to be honest, at Mm. what goes on. Um, And you just have to sort of like pick yourself up and keep going. It also gives me more empathy for the people whose stories I tell and more understanding and more thought about my own practice, constantly revising how I speak to and, you know, deal with people. Now, that includes both people who are sources, you know, who are the whistleblowers, you know, making the allegations, but also the people who are being called to account, you know, um, I think we have to be extraordinarily careful in our practice and to always realise the seriousness of what we're doing, that sometimes this is going to destroy a person's career, mm. that it's going to significantly harm their reputation and that we don't do that based on what we think of a person or some sort of vendetta or this nonsense that has been Uh, thrown at particularly women journalists that were somehow activists. It's complete nonsense and rubbish and Mm. it's completely sexist as well because you don't hear it about, you know, Hedley Thomas, for instance, Um, but uh, who is great, by the way, I'm not criticising Hedley Thomas, but, you know, you have to just really, really treat things with the gravity that they deserve. I think one of the ramifications of the work that you do and the fact that it is so tightly tied up with legal proceedings a lot of the time means that defamation law is something that you're working with and around every day. And certainly defamation proceedings are something that have even been brought against you in the ABC for some of the work that you've done. I'm not going to ask you to comment on any of that individually because we know that that gets complicated. But what I did want to ask is about Australia's defamation laws more generally. And there is a critique that exists that says our defamation laws are too tight meaning that journalists can't do the work uh, that they want to do and that is important that they do to hold various figures to account. Do you think defamation laws should be changed? Yes. So our defamation laws in Australia are some of the most onerous in the world and make the practice of investigative journalism extremely difficult. I will say, despite the fact that, you know, there was a very high-profile defamation proceeding brought against myself and the ABC by the former Attorney General and former Member of Parliament, Christian Porter, which he walked away from with no apology, uh, no damages, and the story's still up. That's the first time that I've been sued in Mm. 21 years of journalism. I am extraordinarily careful, partially because of my legal background, but partially also because of the, as I say, seriousness with which I treat these things. And, you know, I've had the old solicitor's letter, but that's the first time. So the problem is that when, you know, you're involved with a high profile thing like that, it's like, oh, well, Louise Milligan defamation, et cetera. But um, yes, the defamation laws are a problem. 
There is a new public interest defence that has been uh, introduced. It hasn't been introduced in every jurisdiction yet. It remains to be seen whether that public interest defence will really get us out of the water because there are lots of different caveats to it. And there have been some pretty chilling judgments recently. I still have some concerns. Um, It's terrifying being sued. It's not just terrifying, it's also really time-consuming. Like when I was doing the Porter case, I had to take weeks and weeks and weeks off work to prepare for that. And it wasn't just like, I mean, I was still working. I was working from first thing in the morning till midnight Mm. preparing documents and so on. It was mediated while I was in hospital after having had an operation. Um, It was just... So, so exhausting. And speaking in the broad, like not about this particular case, but plaintiff lawyers who act for plaintiffs in these defamation cases, they know that. They know what they're putting journalists through. And there has been in recent years a disturbing trend by politicians in particular to sue journalists across the board. I'll be interested to see whether, you know, with the change of federal government and so on, whether that sort of zeitgeist has moved Mm. on. But um, it's nerve-wracking and, you know, they can put things in documents. I mean, one example, right? So our defence to the Porter case was uh, it it is not in the public domain because he asked for it not to be and, and the judge eventually agreed. The reply to the defence is in the public domain and in that there is a reference to me essentially hounding the complainant to her suicide, that I had approached her for an interview, she had knocked me back and that this had had some role in her deciding to kill herself. I never met her. I never spoke to her. I never even knew she existed before she died. But that remains there. These are the sorts of attacks that can get made under absolute privilege. Yeah. And, you know, you have to become incredibly steely in order to withstand it. Like you become the target, you become the source of news. And as I say, some of the coverage by some of our colleagues left a lot to be desired. Louise, one of the other things you've written about is that through the course of investigations and court processes that there are other people who experience the hurt and the raw emotion and the, and the tra- I'm going to use the word trauma, right, the trauma mm. of being part of a court process. And, and you explore that in your, in your second book, Witness. You spoke about your first book, Cardinal, earlier. Mm. I wish we had hours to dive into this, <laughs> but we don't. Yeah. Uh, and there's a reason you wrote a whole book about it. But Do you think you could speak for a moment to the experience of lay people who are not familiar with the court system, are not familiar with how Mm. lawyers work and what happens in a courtroom, especially during a criminal trial, who come into the system as a witness or someone who's seeking justice and what their experience is of, I suppose, coming up against a process they knew nothing about? Yeah, well, that's the point, that they don't know anything about it and Again, it's incredibly bruising for Mm. particularly complainants of 
sexual crimes. That's what I was focusing on in witness, but others as well. I mean, I spoke to expert witnesses who were absolutely torn to shreds, who were deeply traumatised by their experience, you know, psychologists and doctors and people like that. I mean, one of the things that has really struck me over the past couple of years, we've had this huge reckoning with the Me Too movement and with the allegations about uh, issues in Parliament, for instance. We've had Grace Tame out there on the national stage. Um, we've had Saxton Mullins, you know, Paris Street in the St Kevin story that I did. And we celebrate these people for... Mm speaking their truth. And there's been a really great shift, I think, from when I was younger, where you you didn't talk about these things. No. You didn't come forward because you thought you would be shamed. People would Google your name and then you'd be forever associated with that. And these people have got this sense of righteous anger. I'm not the perpetrator. I'm the person who mm. deserves to be heard and and who deserves to get justice. And I'm not going to be silent about this. So, of course, Grace Tame with the letters speak, etc. The problem is that we lead them up the garden path in a way because once they get into that criminal justice system, all of the sort of care and concern and celebration of their bravery and all of that sort of stuff, that just goes pretty much out the window. And they are in cross-examination, subjected to a process that I can't think of any other analogy, the way that they're spoken to. The closest one that I have is Parliament. Louise, I wish we had hours, as I've said already, (laughs) but uh, we're coming up to time. So I want to ask about what's next for you because Mm -hmm. we've watched you do some absolutely incredible reporting through your career, especially over the last few years. Four Corners is on Monday night. What should we expect? Well, for a few years, I've been saying to my bosses that I would really like to look into the issue of homelessness um, and to really do a very much a gritty observational documentary looking at how people lose their homes and how people, um, what life they live. Mm. Since that, I first started talking about that a few years ago and events caught up with me there has been a change in profile in terms of people who are homeless and it's very much shifted to regional areas which are pressured by things like COVID migration and domestic tourism, Airbnb, people buying property, um, rents hiking, very narrow vacancy rates and so on. And now there's this new profile of working poor essentially, very often women, Um, who have had relationship breakdowns, who are trying so hard to get out of the situation they are in, are applying for dozens and dozens of properties and they and their little kids have nowhere to live or they're stuck in housing that is riddled with asbestos and black mould or in towns that are fairly modest that once used to be the sort of place where you could, if you were a disability worker or a nurse or a, um, you know, a retail worker or someone who worked in aged care, you could find a place. Mm. You can't now. And that's crucial because we need people in those industries. Yeah. And we have a Prime Minister who is um, someone who grew up in public housing. The federal government is um, doing more on this issue now, but our um, investigation will show just how much more needs to be done. 
Sounds like uh, an absolute must watch for all of us. Louise Milligan, thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks so much, Jamila. That's it for my conversation with Louise Milligan. You can check out the new Four Corners episode that she is behind on 3 October. That will be on ABC or you can catch up on iview. You may have caught a very brief mention of suicide in that conversation. If you need someone to talk to and you should absolutely reach out if you do, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Up next, Bron is jumping into the studio for the weekend list. Bron is here. It's weekend list time and it is time for us to talk about what you can watch, see, do, listen, all those things this weekend. Bron, as you know, I am someone who needs some advice. I am someone who struggles to be on the cutting edge of cool and you're going you're gonna to help me get there. Gee, that's a big call. I don't know if I can be on the cutting <laughs> edge of cool because my first one is going to a trivia night with your mates. I'm sure there's a local pub <laughs> near you. I don't know how cool or groundbreaking this is, but it's such fun when you get a group of mates together. It's like a good, cheap, you know, midweek activity. Uh, get out and about, catch up with your friends, show off a little bit if you're good at trivia or sit back and relax and enjoy a nice meal if you're not. Um, yeah, and it's just like a fun, easy thing to do with your friends. I absolutely love that. Also, because I don't need to be cool to do it. So thanks for that one, Bron. Um, I am going to recommend Heartbreak High, the reboot of which has just dropped on Netflix. So this is a remake of the like beloved 90s Aussie series that follows a bunch of high school students who go to Hartley High. And that show was a massive coming of age kind of show for millennials and uh, myself included. I now look back and think about some of the themes and what I learned watching Heartbreak High. And uh, I think maybe I may have been too young to watch it. This is uh, Heartbreak High all over again, but focusing on a Generation Z group of students. And yes, it is about love and heartbreak and sex and drugs and all the sort of teenage themes. But there is something about this show, even now it has come again, it has got something special. It's got an X factor that means you cannot stop talking about it. I am feeling all the love for the reboot, particularly seeing its representation, for example, of a new character called Quinny, who is autistic. I think if you are someone who loved sex education, if you loved uh, Euphoria, if you loved the original Heartbreak High, definitely check this one out. Your names were on the map in the stairwell. This is a sexual literacy tutorial. Oh. Who else was in on it? You usually accomplice Harper. What happened? Our friendship was perfect and it just f***ing blew up into nothing. Dude, everyone's pissed. You broke people up, outed people. That's not a reason to dump me. Oi, hello, didn't you hear me? I can't wait to watch. My next one is also on Netflix. It's a movie called Do Revenge, which has Camila Mendez, who is uh, in Riverdale, and Maya Hawke, who's um, on Stranger Things. So it's a teen movie, but even though I am not a teen anymore, I'm still loving the nostalgic factor of this. It's got awesome costuming. It takes a turn that you don't expect. I won't give anything away, but it's actually really had me hooked from the start. And it's just a fun, easy watch if you're in the mood for 
a nice chillaxing weekend. Carissa Jones, she started a nasty rumor about me. She told everyone that I tried to hold her down and kiss her. Turned me into this predator. She destroyed me. I wish we could hire people to take them down. We should team up and do each other's revenge. Don't you want to make her pay? I don't want to make her pay. I want to burn her to the ground. Whoa. I love that. Good recommendation. I'm going to give you another sort of chillaxing recommendation, everyone, and that's The Drop, which is a podcast from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age that is all about culture. So it touches on TV, music, books, movies, and it's hosted by Osman Faruqi, who I think is just first class, and it gives listeners the chance to hear directly from Osman and also the SMH and the Ages team of journalists who work on writing about culture. And these are people who I've, I've read their work so much. I really admire it. They take a really smart, in-depth take on cultural moments. And it's so nice to hear them in audio. And I found myself going backwards and forwards to read their writing online and then also listen to them explore it in more depth. There are a few episodes that I have really loved lately. One of them is Inside the Cult of Disney and it goes back and looks at the really, you know, the humble origins of Mickey Mouse and stuff to the fact that now Disney owns just about everything we consume when it comes to content. Uh, There's also a really great episode exploring whether or not the ABC as a broadcaster has just given up on young people and trying to attract young people. It's mostly people over 55 who watch the ABC and they kind of posit the theory if they just stop trying with everyone else. It's really interesting when you think about the fact that the ABC is taxpayer funded and therefore should be for all of us. So the drop, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this podcast as well for this week. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Briefing. We loved having your company. If you'd like to join us again, then the best thing to do is to download the listener app and you can follow the briefing there. It will mean you never miss an episode of The Weekday Show or The Weekend Show, or you can subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, if you have a moment to leave us a rating and a review, that would absolutely make my day. Tom Tilly and the team will be back with you bright and early on Monday morning and they will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.